Welcome to the Player Engage podcast, where we dive into the biggest challenges, technologies, trends, and best practices for creating unforgettable player experiences. Player Engage is brought to you as a collaboration between Keyword Studios and HelpShift. Here is your host, Greg Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Player Engage podcast. This is Greg, and today we are meeting with Josh Wetzel from One. Signal. We dive into the career journey and insights of Josh Wetzel, a seasoned executive who had navigated diverse roles in sales, marketing, and business development. Instead of going to my normal intro, let's just take a look at some of the companies that Josh has worked for and, and kind of get his insight in. So it starts off as being a history major at Denison University. From there, just a few of the companies that I immediately connect with since I was growing up and knew these companies, right? Director of Business Development at CNET, still a popular tech website out there. Director of Distribution at eBay, VP of Mobile and Emerging Media at Pubmatic, VP of Marketing Solutions at Bizarre Voice, and now CRO at OneSignal. So first off, Josh, very excited about you being here. We just had a great conversation about football, so maybe some of that will come out. But uh, anything I missed about you, anything specific you'd like to share about yourself? No, Greg, that was awesome. I appreciate it. Before we actually really start, right, uh, we... HelpShift have been partners with OneSignal for a while now, but can you give a quick elevator, maybe a minute pitch to our listeners on what is OneSignal and what are the services you're providing? Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, OneSignal is the the world's most used customer engagement platform. Started off actually more than a decade ago as a mobile game studio, went through Y Combinator, had to build kind of mobile messaging, specifically push and, and in-app messaging to support their games. And then um, realized through the industry that there was a big need for that, pivoted to just do messaging, rebranded. Actually, that's how we became OneSignal around 2014, 2015, and have been providing a, a free product. Um, so we grow rapidly. We're now in one in every five mobile apps and have expanded over the last seven, eight years to include orchestration across multiple channels, to build out a, a robust email product, support SMS, and support all the other channels through um, what we call webhooks. So you can trigger messages in WhatsApp or, you know, sending postcards to users, whatever it may be. And it's been a, it's been a great ride. I've been here five years. It's an awesome product. We work with companies around the world. We have over uh, we have a customer in over 130 unique countries. Uh, I think we have users in almost every country that's not embargoed by the United States. And it's great to work and support you know businesses of all sizes. Really large businesses use us, um, but also a lot of small businesses and uh, startups. And um, it's great to hear all the innovation happening around the world as I as I travel and, and meet various one signal community members. It's a great place to be, right? Because you know, I feel like in my mind, mobile had a big push with gaming in the beginning. It took gaming to that kind of next level to be able to communicate, to be able to push notifications. And I think it's taken a longer while, and we're beyond this point now. But you see different sectors also now going into mobile very heavily, right? FinTech's there, uh, CPG is there, retail is there, right? And, and looking at your client list, you really touch all those verticals, which are great. And I think more those companies are starting to realize we need to start messaging. We need to start proactively reaching out. We need to get in front of our users. So it really is a good place to be. And George, your CEO, I believe, also got his start in gaming. So do you see or have you seen parallels between gaming and kind of what you guys are doing at one signal yeah i mean very much uh, you know we started off in gaming so uh that's the core dna of the business um and our other co-founder long um long Vo, was uh kind of part of the the street fighter 2 reboot kind of founding team founded guy interactive so has a deep history as well in gaming he's on the on the art side in fact he uh he has quite a few uh, fans. In fact, he'll do um, he'll do expositions or go to the uh, Comic Con events. 
And um, so really, really fascinating career for him. But yeah, I, to answer your question, yeah, I would say that gaming is very much similar. And, and there's certain industries, whether it's gaming, whether it's some other adult stuff that really help drive innovation because so many people use it. It's a it's a core part of entertainment. I think it was a couple of years ago that gaming as a as an entire industry overtook movies and television in terms of revenue. Um, and you see it now on TV, right? Like there's there's beer ads, and then there's like actual game ads, both for for mobile games, uh, also kind of the traditional like PC based games. It's clearly driving us in the kind of AR VR uh, next wave as well. Um, but yeah, it's definitely been, it's been helpful. And I think for me personally, you know, I, I, I grew up gaming, but I'm not a huge gamer now. It's more the fact that we've just got this, this product that's adopted by so many people, you know, we're delivering 12 plus billion messages a day and you get to, I personally get to engage with people, you know, doing a fresh milk delivery service in India as an example, because that's a, that's a problem for, for people. And they're using our platform to help keep people informed, keep people connected, knowing when stuff's going to be delivered. You know, that's just one example, but it's, you know, you talk to these different business models that are solving different problems that, you know, maybe us in the U S have, have no clue about. Um, so it's been great. Your portfolio, your background, right. All the places you've been are, are really seem to be taking, place during peak times of those technologies. And I don't know if that makes any sense, right? But you're at CNET when technology is becoming popular. People are looking for places online to start reading it. You were at eBay, which we don't need to talk about eBay. Everyone knows about eBay. Pubmatic, Bazaar Voice, sharing your, your opinions and being able to help. But one signal, push messaging, like to take a step back, hey, I think that's all awesome. But did you picture yourself here or, or what did you want to be when you were growing up? How, how do you end up being a history major at Denison to becoming CRO? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think the first time I've ever been introduced in any form where they, you mentioned Denison. So look, first off, it starts off, I was, I was very lucky. I was born and raised in Palo Alto, California. I'm a sixth generation Northern Californian. Uh, so that was, that was very fortunate. When I went away to college, I either wanted to be a lawyer or a psychologist. And I was a double major and uh, I only, I only ended up minoring in psychology because I think during my junior or senior year, I got I sort of realized that like, I didn't want to go to the psychology route. Technology was taken off at the time. This was, you know, uh, or internet was taken off at the time. Technology had been going on for, for decades and decades. And I graduated. I went to work at a law firm. I actually lived in, in Los Angeles. Denison is, is based in Ohio, so a small liberal arts school. Um, fantastic school. I got, I got a lot of good liberal arts training, learned a lot. Um, but when I got to law firm, I realized like this is not a great lifestyle. It's very hierarchical. Um, very have and have not. In fact, some of the most talented uh, people who knew the most were what I what were paralegals, basically, or legal secretaries. They were kind of at the lower end of the totem pole, and they were stuck. And the lowest level associate attorney who knew nothing was was higher up. And I just there was just something about the old experience. I realized like this isn't for me. Um, and so I eventually left and made back home and got a, a job in software. And I was hooked. Uh, I took a job at this company called Go Live Cyber Studio. We were creating, at the time, the industry leading, kind of most well liked and one of the most well used um, HTML editing software. So they called it WYSIWYG Editor. And about two months into my tenure, we got acquired by Adobe. And I kid you not, I remember thinking, like, whoa, this is so easy and so fun. This is incredible. And this was, I think, uh, when was this? Fall of 98. So I think, I think we announced the acquisition at Macworld in January of 99. And I actually got an offer to stay at Adobe 
And, uh, but it was like some random job. And I remember walking the halls there and thinking, God, this company feels so old. Like there was offices and there was like, it was just very cubicle. And I was very naive. I was young, but I, I, uh, so I ended up helping start a company, um, learned a lot. And then I got in a, a company called my Simon, which was an early product search engine. We got acquired by CNET. And I, you know, a lot of this is just following your heart, having ambition and then luck. I think you've got to be open about what you're enjoying. Um, you've got to really appreciate and be um, recognize like where you're having an impact and and be aware of that. Uh, and I could go specific into jobs where I'm like, oh, this was great, but then you know you learn things along the way. And and I think for me, it was very fortunate. Look, that fortune was at where I grew up, but it was also just taking advantage of opportunities. I got into that startup. We got acquired. That led to me helping start something which didn't work out. By the way, I learned a valuable lesson there about fundraising and then prototyping and actually getting a product to, to market, uh, which we didn't actually ever get anything to market. So, um, And then my assignment was awesome. You know, CNET in those days was, was incredible. We were a top web site in terms of traffic. We were huge. I think we had... At one time, we were like a couple thousand employees. Um, I always worked on the shopping kind of product search side of that. So for me, I was a little bit little siloed. I wasn't as quite into the edit side, which was what CNET's kind of mostly known for now. Um, but I, I, I stayed passionate. You know, one of the things I learned early on was be, be, be excited about the product. And when you're not excited about the product, it's time to do something different. Um, and so that led me from CNET into shopping.com, which then got acquired by eBay. That's how I ended up at eBay. And eBay helped build a product there. Um, I'll, actually, I'll tell you one, one little tidbit of my career, and I think this is why I'm now a CRO, just to cut to the chase, was I got married in 2003. And at that important in my life, I had a mentor, um, a guy named Chaz Edwards, awesome guy. Went on to start Federated Media. He was previously CRO at one point of Dig. Um, he was an exec at, at CNET back in the day. Um, just great guy. But he told me one day, he said, he's like, you know, you and I talking to me, you know, we're, we're basically, uh, we don't think of ourselves as sellers because we're strategic. And so that's why we're in kind of BD marketing. He's like, but we're strategic sellers. And I remember thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. Like I'm strategic. Like I can't be in sales. And um, I get married in 2003. He tells me this probably in like 2002, 2003, 2004, time, sometime around that. I, I go start a, I help start a business unit within shopping.com. It was this distributed commerce thing. We we're taking all the lists. Think, think AdSense for, for commerce, basically. We, we built that and built a pretty big business there. Um, so that's where I got my kind of general management experience, scaled the business, and it kind of propelled me in the next thing. But my wife sat me down one day, and I think in like 2008, 2009, she said, you know, you know, what, 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 what are you passionate about? And how are you working? And what, you know, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm passionate about these businesses and scaling. And, and you know, you got you to go build these relationships. And the relationships ultimately drive success with the product and so on. And I was like, you know, it's like strategic kind of business development. And she's like, well, that sounds like sales to me. And I, I realized at that moment that I had a block in me that I couldn't, I'm not a seller. Sales is like over here. That's not strategic. That's not interesting. And it was a really unlock for me in the sense that no, sales is critical. And actually, I'm everything I'm doing each and every day is about selling, right? I'm just selling in a unique way. I'm I'm building relationships that distribute a product and grow revenue, or I'm selling, you know, the the business. I'm selling myself. I'm selling the company on a on a potential, you know, a, a new hire. Anyhow, that was an unlock. And I think from that point on. 
I really recognized that, you know, to build a business, sales was the most critical part, at least of the value added impact I'm going to have, because I'm not an engineer and I'm not, I'm not going to be driving product decisions. And so that really led me, I think from that point on, I knew that I always wanted to be in roles where I was helping impact, touching multiple functions, but, but definitely being focused from a sales standpoint in driving kind of overall revenue. And the rest is somewhat history. I think that, you know, the, the rest of the jobs really were just stops where I was passionate about the product and there was a, a, a good mutual understanding of what the, the vision was and where I could have an impact. And, um, and I've been fortunate to, to go to some places that have had some success um, long term. It's interesting. You said a ton there. There's a lot of great stuff in there. And the one that sticks out most, the last one you said, right, is that everyone at the company is in sales, right? You may not be in sales, but you're working for that company. You're selling that company. It goes back to the point that you made that you need to love what you do, right? If you're in an industry that bores you, you're not going to do a good job at selling it and representing the company. It's about finding something you love and something you're passionate about. And then it doesn't feel like selling. I mean, I'm a sales engineer and they tried to put me as a sales rep for a few accounts. And I just, I don't like to go hunt as they call, right? I'm not, I don't want to go pressure my customers into buying it. I'd rather just organically talk to them about what we have, how I can help them, how anyone can help them, right? And I think when you just start talking honestly with someone, I think sales become so much easier and so much more impactful from the customer's perspective because then they don't feel like a sales rep. They really feel like it's someone I can trust. And I think it's an important relationship to be able to build is making sure that you can trust the person that you're talking to, even if it's a sales rep. Yep, 100%. You also mentioned earlier in the conversation that you uh, you kind of looked at it as a, and timing is important, what you do is important. I also think, or, sorry, you said luck. I do think timing is also important, right? Each one of those yes. jobs that you mentioned, the timing kind of worked out really well for you. And knock on wood that you can keep that good timing up and going from there. But when you kind of look back at your career, uh, was technology always something that was something that excited you? Or was there some sort of like, and maybe this pivotal moment that you realized was that, hey, I'm in sales. But was there a pivotal moment that you looked at that actually changed the course of your career outside of that CRO aspect though? sales aspect. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because actually that's a, an important component of my story, which is I've always been enamored with what's new. Um, I've always been an early adopter. You know, uh, I signed up to, to buy a Tesla before I even knew what the car would look like or what it would cost and was shocked when I saw the initial pricing on the, the Model S. But I bought it because when I drove it for the first time, it was amazing. Um, so I, you know, even if I had to mortgage or sell out my, my kid's college fund, I did it. Um, no, but in all honesty, like, you know, I'm constantly wearing three or four wearables. I just, I live and breathe kind of what's new and um, almost to the to the detriment of my family and friends. So I've always been passionate about, about um, technology and what innovation. I think as I've gotten older, I've become more wise about what are the things that are actually accentuating life versus maybe holding us back and not to, to call out certain products, but, you know, whether they're social oriented and they're distracting us or whatnot. But I think that's a big part of what drives me. And I, going back to the history thing, you know, I, there doesn't probably a week that goes by where I don't think about like, hey, what a wonderful, how blessed am I that I'm working at a time in the in history of the world where we're going through this fundamental shift. This would be like when the wheel was created or the printing press. Like we're going through a fundamental shift at how we communicate, how we connect and how we sort of live our lives that will, you know, kids, you know, five, six, seven, eight thousand years from now, ideally, knock on wood, that we're still we're still thriving and, and evolving, are gonna study this era. And so to be part of that for me from a historical perspective actually is a is a fascinating kind of driver above and beyond anything else. But yes, I think the net of it is I, I definitely have always enjoyed 
and been passionate about technology. Um, I've been an early adopter at you know consumer electronics, but even like software and things of that nature. And then I really I do appreciate that the historical context that I think we're we're all in. What is your favorite favorite piece of technology you've you've purchased within the last year? Um, good question. Uh, I would say my favorite like consumer thing, which I it's been longer than a year, is my Aura Ring. I've been wearing this for about two and a half years, but it's been a game changer in terms of helping me think about sleep. Um, helping me think about just my health in general, getting exercise, movement, um, you know, where am I at mentally, both in terms of readiness, things like that. On the software side, like in the think B2B, that's a great question. Um, I was a very earlier adopter of Gong, relatively speaking, and we've we've gone very deep with that. I think um maybe not the most advanced, I don't I don't know, but we use it on all sorts of of ways, both from product feedback to obviously training, um, you know, helping helping really understand and 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 uh, where we are with customers, it's it's a really cool product, and I I give them a ton of credit for how much they've evolved in the last, you know, especially since we adopted them in I think it was like late nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety, uh, late in two thousand eighteen, must have been two thousand nineteen. So I'm stretching yeah. a little bit. It's been a little bit more than than. A year, but Gong's been a big game changer on our end too. I mean, just being able to read a conversation, not having to listen to it. Right, if you're on a flight, you want to pull something up easily and quickly. It's just it's easier to consume the insights as well as find those keywords that are important. So I, I, we used to use Gong, and I don't know if we are still using it, but but I, I did really enjoy using that tool. So I guess you talked about mentorship, and I think this is an interesting one because. I feel like it's an intimidating thing to ask someone to be your mentor or it just not happens naturally. Maybe I just don't even know the answer to that, but, but how much of a role does that play in your career? Have you, have you felt like you've mentored people or do you know you are mentoring people? And do you see that as being important to your, to your growth and success? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a great question. I, and I think I've, I, mine have been much more organic. You know, as I mentioned Chaz earlier, there's been other folks in my life who I, you just by being around them and listening and hearing how they operate or, or taking in feedback from them, even if they're like your manager and they're giving you, and they're giving you reviews. I think it's really important. It's quite frankly why I think remote work long-term, um, particularly for people under 30, 35 even, is really bad because it's hard to get that, like it's hard to see someone operate. It's hard to get those like, those informal cues. It's hard to have those like water cooler conversations. Um, so I highly encourage people who are still earlier in their career. You know, it's one thing if you're remote, but but take the time to be in the office whenever you can. Travel to the home office, um, get that exposure. So a couple of different components there. The other question I think was, um, you know, and you brought up a great point, which is like it's hard. There's not a formal way. Like, do I go ask somebody? I've never been someone who like went and said, "Hey, can you be my mentor?" But I think that's actually it's a it's a trait that I probably should have adopted earlier on. I think if you can advocate for yourself, and and you know, someone may say, "No, that's the worst case." One of my mottos, by the way, in life, uh, which I've not always lived by, particularly in this case, is you know, the only way to guarantee failure with something is to not try, right? So like, I can guarantee that you're not going to succeed if you don't even give an effort. So that's an example where. You know, if you know somebody and you're like, hey, I really like, you know, they've been successful or I think that I, I can model some of these behaviors, ask them to be a mentor. And I think most times people are going to 
they're going to, you know, if they're not completely self-absorbed and, and, uh, or just overwhelmed in life, they're going to say yes. Have I mentored people? You know, it's a good question. Like, I don't know if I've ever had, I guess I have had a couple of people formally ask me and I, I tend to, you know, I think of myself a little bit as a coach in some ways. Like I, I tend to, I, one of my value adds is I bring a lot of energy. I, I want to be direct and provide people um, constant, you know, or just provide them a forum to have open conversations. My perspective, um, you know, in terms of myself, but also for other people is, you know, what are you trying to accomplish and what are the skills and necessary, um, you know, sort of experiences you're going to need to get to where you want to be? Mm -hmm. um, and then helping guide people there. So even in the interview process, one of my core focuses, uh, anyone we interview at OneSignal is, what are your career aspirations? Where do you see yourself? Like, what are your strengths? I'm actually trying to, my role in that process is trying to suss out, you know, where is this person today? Where do they want to be in two to five years? So that I can understand, like, are they going to be a good fit today for what we need and what they're good at? And are we going to be able to provide them a necessary um, trajectory to, you know, you can never predict the future, even you know, in this in this world, uh, more than three to six months out. But realistically, when I think about where we're evolving to, like, are we going to be able to help them achieve those experience goals? And it, and if you know, there's been examples where, like, they might be a great fit for right now, but we're certainly not going to be able to necessarily meet their goals. And I don't mean like my goal is I want to come in as an individual contributor and I I expect to manage in two years. It's more refined than that. It's like I'm really good at enterprise selling, right? Just go back to this, uh, or I'm really good at transactional and I want to evolve into a, um, a relationship, consultative sell. I want to learn how to go from like commercial inside to enterprise. To me, it's like, okay, that's great. Like I know in my current job, we've, we're going to have a lot of evolution there. We're going to definitely help you there. We're going to do a lot of training. I personally can lean in for you. If somebody's like, hey, I want to be a transactional seller. And I'm, and this is really basic. I mean, there are yeah, obviously different functions. It could be in marketing, like I want to get this exposure. And then I know that we're not going to be doing a lot of that. It's it's sort of having that frank conversation being like, this is where we're at. And I don't, you know, I, I think if that's truly your goal, it's probably not going to be a good fit. So I, I believe strongly that that's important. Um, and I think quite frankly, I, I can't speak for most people, but my sense is that people aren't having enough of those types of conversations. Um, and so it's it's why you end up in jobs that don't work out long term. I think there's also kind of this unknown of what I want to do when I grow up, right? Do you want to be a sales engineer your whole life? Do you want to be a director of BD your entire life, right? Like, I have a lot of friends that teach and they don't necessarily love being in that anymore. And they're like, oh, I have no skills that translate anywhere else. And that's not the case, right? It's understanding how they translate to these other languages or verticals, right? And I think, you know, just because you are a transactional seller today doesn't mean in the next 10 years, that's what you want to be doing. And I don't think people know what they want to be doing. And it's part of the reason why I was excited to actually start doing this podcast is to understand the stories of how you got from one place to the next. So I think, I think, I think that's a smart question to be asking people about. I'd be surprised if everyone actually had a true answer of, where they want to go. Well, and I usually give a preamble with people too. I, I say, look, I, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up either, but you get a better and better. You can paint a, a clearer and clearer picture as you evolve. And um, and so I think for, for me, I, I kind of have a really good sense of exactly where I'm adding value and where I want to continue to add value going forward. But when you're 25, I certainly didn't know. Like I said earlier, I I would never have touched a sales job back then 
you know, even though that was, I was, I had a mental block, so I had to grow through that. But I mean, for you, you're a sales engineer. What do you, what do you want to do? Like when you think out five, 10 years, you know, you, you see yourself in, in software still, and, and you want to be in the go to market side, you want to be in product. So I always liked being a sales engineer. Before I was a sales engineer, I was an account manager or not an account manager, like a, I was on post sales. So yep. we worked for a financial company that would get yelled at when our systems were down because it was interrupting their market hours. Uh, then I went to pre-sales and I realized, hey, people don't yell at you in the pre-sales side of things. That's fantastic. It's a great <laughs> place to be. I was also yeah. an introvert at the time. So I was very shy, wasn't quiet. Like I was afraid to approach people and talk to people. Um, what I learned now about being a sales engineer is I like telling stories. I like understanding what your when we became partners, right? I was a pivotal part of that because I kind of built out this whole story of how one signal and help shift work together. And it excited me, like not for the, hopefully no one at my company hears this, but not for the ability for me to start selling one signal and help shift, but this is a cool solution that we can start telling people that, yo, we, we have this problem that we've identified in the market and we can start solving and then going to listen to the customer. So I've learned I like storytelling. And then when they started understanding that, they said, Hey, maybe you want to start this podcast. And I love what I'm doing right now. And it's a lot of work and it's a lot of going out there, but th this is what I've learned. I like to do at the moment, especially in gaming. I've been a gamer my whole life. So it's kind of like I woke up one day and it was like a, Oh shit moment. Like I work for a gaming company. All of a sudden we got acquired by keyword studios. That's awesome. Like, yep. And now how can I take advantage of this? Right. And then you learning your next moves, but it's kind of the blind leading the blind. Sometimes you don't know what you want to do and maybe that role doesn't exist, but if you can find value there and create value in there, does it doesn't make sense. So yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, when we talk about one signal, right, there's a very clear comparison to the gaming industry as of today with the freemium model. You guys do have a free tier of access, which is fantastic. It's a great way to get started, a great way to implement the SDK. From your side, it's a great place to be because you know who's using the tool and you can start understanding how to build out a, ro a, a pipeline with that, right? But what are the challenges you guys have encountered by offering this freemium model? And kind of how do you maintain a high level user experience? I don't know if there are any challenges with the free model. I think it's been it's been awesome. You know, we our mission is to democratize customer engagement. We truly want to be able to provide world class tools to, you know, to everybody, whether you're starting out a new app or you're you own a pizza shop and you you want to be able to engage with people through digital channels. Um, so I I I see it as it's been wonderful in, in every ass in every facet. I would say that um, in terms of uh, how we think about the commercial side of the business, is we want to add incremental value. Like we want we want to be able to to provide advanced functionality so that businesses that have the wherewithal, they have the resources, can truly use powerful features to be able to you know create ongoing automated uh, customer journeys. So think onboarding, someone comes and downloads the app or comes to the website, like how do you drive them through the experience so that they're having the impact that you want them to have and they're having positive interaction with your service? Um, Re-engagement, you know, think about the, the life cycle of driving someone to, to pay for a subscription or to come back to the service. So I, I think for us, it's always been, you know, we love the the free offering. We 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 tout it. We want people to start using the the, the product, um, and then we've differentiated on providing awesome product above and beyond that to meet the needs of of legitimate, you know, kind of SMB businesses, mid market, and even a ton of enterprises. We work with a 
ton of media companies, uh, fintech, large fintech companies, sports league. A lot that we are dominant in sports leagues because we deliver really fast notifications and really robust kind of technical tools. They can integrate deeply into the CMS and, and whatnot, um, or their apps or whatnot. So yeah, for us, I think we've really embraced it, and it's been part of the core of our success. Is we don't sit there and, and say, oh, the free product stealing, you know, share or whatnot. For us, it's it's a tremendous place to to source leads from. And it's a great place, you know, in, in anytime we're having a conversation with a large customer, it's we're like, hey, start off, just download the SDK, implement it. It's going to take you, I kid you not, 15 minutes. I, I've done it myself, an Android app. Um, and I'm not technical. Yeah, get it going, test it out, like play around. It's easy. You can start uh, building subscriber base if you're not using a tool or if you're using some basic thing like a, a Firebase. Um, it's going to give you more advanced function, uh, functionality immediately. And let's let's talk through the functionality and your use cases and understand you know where you're trying to get to. And it opens up a much broader conversation. Um, and quite frankly, the people we compete with, they don't offer that. And they, you know, quite frankly, they hate when there's a POC because they know that their you know their products are really difficult to implement. Um, they take a lot more time to set up properly and and get going. So it's a point of differentiation and strength for us. I'm trying to figure out if I want to word this question, but you know, during the pandemic, kind of the whole culture of the world changed for a couple of years there, right? Uh, I think from the one signal perspective, you kind of prioritize the customer experience rather than truly going during rather than doing uh, geographic expansion. But uh, I was wondering how you saw your usage change during the COVID era, right? I assume it would probably go up, but I'm curious on, on how that kind of changed the, and if it did at all, the the uh, direction the company was going? Yeah. I, so I would say, you know, we did uh, grow substantially um, both in terms of usage. So number of people signing up for the product and usage expanded pretty rapidly, particularly in 2020, uh, second half of 2020 and then early 2021. And for obvious reasons, people were locked at home. If I was a barber shop or I had a pizza joint, you're like, okay, how do I how do I connect with customers? Like, how do I build? You know, I've got time. I you know, I need to use digital because everyone's on their phones or their computers. So we saw a pretty rapid uh, expansion there. We also focused, I think, in 21 and 22 have been big years of actually building out teams in other parts of the world. We we realized, um, you know, by 2020 we knew this already, but we saw that there was a lot of usage, and quite frankly, our customer base was growing rapidly in in um, in Europe, as an example. So we started building a team in the UK and in late 20, really 21, and then um, and then this past year, year and a half in in Asia, so we started building a team in, in Singapore. So I, I think it's been it's you know both it, the pandemic definitely grew the base significantly on an absolute basis we grew much faster in twenty and twenty one than we had pre, any previous year but also ushered in difficulty right for small business there was a lot of small businesses or medium sized businesses that were using us and for certain use cases those businesses collapsed so you know if you're thinking about anything if you're e commerce you were growing like crazy maybe food delivery grew really fast. Uh, mobile games grew because you were stuck at home and people were using them. Although we're now starting to see a little bit of that impact where people are now back to their regular lives. They don't have as much time to play a mobile game on their couch. And so, you know, I think they're still growing because the absolute base is growing, but it wasn't like up into the right, you know, rocket ship stuff that they saw in 21, 22. So we feel all those impacts, but by and large, we're still, you know, back to my historical comment about technology. 
I still feel like if you're going to use a baseball analogy, right, or some sports analogy, I would say we're still kind of like at the halftime of digitization of our lives. So we still aren't quite there. We've made a huge progress. And some people might say, no, 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 we're like, we're in the eighth inning of this, or, you know, we're in the third or fourth quarter. But I disagree. If you just look at, you know, cars and transportation, we're still at the very early stages of this transition from maybe even car ownership. And then how do you, you know, transportation in general, and think about the apps you use around all these physical uh, um, utilities. They're just pretty rudimentary. Um, I mean, Uber and Lyft are kind of more at the, the you know, they're further ahead. But I think if you just look at like the municipalities, we, we actually work with a ton of these like large municipalities where I look at their apps and I'm just like, this is not a great experience. Like, for example, um, we work with um, a school district in in, uh, in a large, the largest U.S. city that's close to you. And I think they use the product for free, actually, a pretty large scale. Uh, we we work with, you know, like a transportation commission um, that might have the initials MTA. Um, and I look at these apps and they're fine, but they're, you know, they're, it's still very early for them. They're not cutting edge. Apple's not putting them up as, you know, editor's choice because they're, they're just not there yet. So I, I still have a lot of belief that, you know, we're still kind of rounding that corner. And I think the younger people, people under 30, they live their lives on their phone. They're really proficient. But I think you look at people that are over 40, 45, 50, and particularly that aren't in like urban areas where they're born and raised on technology. I think we're still, still, you know, we're still early there. And may, maybe it's just a, it's a time thing. Like when people that are 30 or 50, at that point, the vast majority of the population is going to be really proficient with it. And so all companies will have adopted it. But I still think we're, we're sort of in that phase. So anyhow, I kind of went off off kilter on the question, but um, but it's an important part, I think, of where we are as as a as a you know as a society ultimately, and and the adoption. And by the way, I didn't even touch on geographic. Like you go to Asia, and they're kind of almost they're almost over email, right? Like a lot of people just don't use email. They use it a little bit for business, but they're not using it for personal at all. Whereas in the U.S., we're still stuck where a lot of people still use email for personal and definitely use it extensively for business. So it's it's an interesting dichotomy. In fact, we work with the companies there where, you know, they laugh at us. We're like, well, who do you use for email? They're like, we don't use email. Um, whereas in the US, email is the core workhorse communication channel for, for your consumer base. So I, I, I'm assuming they're ahead. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe we were stuck here in, in spam land. It's just all, all different, right? I mean, when you go overseas, they're using WhatsApp more than their SMS. We're, we're stuck in SMS world here in the States. It's, it's different, right? There's no right or wrong. It's what's being adopted and how it's being adopted. And I agree with you about technology. And you, if you look at the whole generative AI type of things, right? People might have thought, hey, we, we, we're doing as much as we can with the internet right now. All of a sudden, this opens up a new world of possibilities of what am I going to do? How am I going to do my day job? How am I going to make it simpler, right? And I feel like this is a new plateau where we can start to build and develop new products we've never seen before. Um, then we have the metaverse, which... I'm questioning in my entire life. I'm, what What is it? I don't know if you guys are looking at anything like that. And I, I know we've been researching it and kind of doing some stuff with it, but it's whole new frontiers that are opening up. And are they going to be something? Are they not going to be something? It's going to be an interesting conversation over the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I think there's innovations and adjustments based on true technology breakthroughs. And then there's like innovation technology that's actually just managing us through the inefficiencies of existing technologies, utilities. So you touched on WhatsApp. WhatsApp's a great example where WhatsApp doesn't exist if everybody has a American 
telecom mindset where it's like text is just free. It's part of your plan. Like there's no real money there, but you go throughout the world and they actually, it's a huge money maker. So they overcharge for it. So WhatsApp took off, right? Um, now there's a security privacy component and, you know, but I don't know if most consumers care about that. I think that's a, a pretty small, in the US is becoming more so and Europeans obviously skew a little bit more on that. But I think if you're in Asia and South America, I, I still don't think it's as it's huge. Maybe I'm wrong. But then you have the technology breakthroughs that are fundamentally shifting stuff. And I think AI falls under that, you know, still very early to know exactly what this is going to do, but it's clear that a lot of tactical work um, is being made more efficient. And I think some jobs will evolve dramatically in the relatively near term and then, you know, even more so in the long term. And then you've touched on VR, AR. I think, you know, when I look at it, to me, AR is a no brainer. And in fact, we work with a, a, we work with, again, we're in, in sports. I've seen some demos of stuff that's either live now or is coming live. That's amazing. Like you can be at a game, overlay a player. You can see their, you know, like historically what they're, where they hit the ball or in, you know, it could be in football, like, you know, the, the, how they, how they proceed on certain plays. You can bring out historical data. You can supplement the experience dramatically. And I think we're, we're starting to see that again, also in, in the virtual where, you know, I might be on my couch watching the game, but I can overlay a bunch of stats that are really pertinent to me, whether it be a fantasy football uh, context or just a deep fan viewership context. I think all that stuff is the augmented reality stuff is really powerful. And, and Apple gets that and is putting a ton of effort there. I struggle with the truly VR experience because it is so, you know, in the IRL world, it's like the opposite, you know, it's, it's actually pushing further into this world where it's just weird. And yeah. I think it will be there. I think for certain use cases like games and, you know, even like the ability to actually be courtside at an NBA game or on the sideline in an NFL game, but actually not be there. Like those use cases are, are amazing. I think where it takes off though, is when you have this AR VR combo where you and I could be watching a Jets game together, you're at where you are, I'm where I'm at, but we're actually on the sideline chatting together. And then it becomes a social experience between us being pals while we're watching the game live, feeling like we're there, but we're not. I think that's where that stuff really takes off. But that's why I'm a big fan of AR because I think AR takes advantage of, of the technology and the innovation that's happening and bring and enhances the experience, enhances the real life experience. So Yeah, I agree with you. I, and I like your example with the game, right? Being at the game, I, I have a Quest. Uh, I don't use it that often, but I after watching the Apple Vision Pro thing, I was like, you know, if I'm sitting on a flight, if I didn't look like an idiot or whatever, right? Wearing a giant thing on my face. That would be such a cool experience and a great place to use it. But I, I agree with you on the AR aspect. I think everything makes much more sense in AR. It just needs to become a form factor that is much more concealed than it is today. And I also have this argument with someone, but if VR didn't take off during the pandemic when people couldn't leave their house, I think we're entering an era where people are looking to leave their house. And I feel like AR was still, or VR was still expensive at 300 bucks for the Quest, but it's also not that bad at 300 bucks for the Quest. So if it didn't yeah. take off yet, still needs some more stuff. But I feel like that was a great opportunity for it and it just missed. But that's my own personal feelings. I agree. I agree. Um, I'm, I'm dubious on that. I, again, except for maybe gaming and like yeah. entertainment, you know, specific things. But that's not something you're going to do all the time. Whereas AR, you could see a world where, I mean, it might be really weird, but like you might have, 
you know, like you walk around New York City right now, actually four years ago, you walk around New York City, it blew my mind how many people had the white AirPods in, like everywhere, everyone had them in. And, and it made sense because everyone's commuting, they're walking, they want to be having conversations, listening to podcasts, music, whatever. I could see a world in five, six years where a significant portion of the population in places like New York City, you're walking around with the, you know, the the Vision Pro, whatever, you know, at that point it'll be like the Vision SE or something because it'll be a cheaper version. But I, I think that, I think it makes sense. Um, it might feel weird at first, but you'll get used to it. And it's not like you're unengaging because when I walk around the city in New York City, it's not like I'm saying hi to everybody. Like, hey, how's your day? How's your day? Jets look good yesterday. That doesn't happen. So yeah, I think it's a better form factor. The quests are funny. I mean, right? Like you can't see through them. You're not engaging. So um, but who knows? I mean, I could be completely wrong. I, I'm pretty enamored with the with the Vision Pro. Um, I think the the use case, the connection to Disney and all the content, and to be able to have this like immersive experience. I think they're they're going right at the AR. And when they do VR, it's it's like pretty cool, high value content um, stuff. And I think that's quite frankly where Meta has missed a little bit is is going after really high end content, like bringing in the yeah the big IP holders to, to, to create some interesting content. It's just a heck of a price tag to stomach for a technology. You're not sure if you're actually going to use it, but I get it. It's a V1. It's what it's going to be. I, I'm an early adopter and I'm, I'm not clear. I will buy V1. Um, I, I, at this point I would not buy it, but I think, you know, it's not coming out for another six, seven months. So, yeah. um, but I'm very curious. I definitely want to demo it and, I could see it being like the car where I'm just like, oh, this is amazing. I have to have it. So, um, did you have those uh, Snapchat glasses back in the day? A few years I never ago? did. I, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit older, so I, I yeah. was all about the social, and I definitely was using Snapchat early, but I never, I was never a big Snapchat user. For me, it was just like checking yeah. it out. And, um, I bought them to sell them because it was a good idea. But uh, I, that was a great form factor. And I know it did nothing as near as. The Vision Plus, Vision Pro will do or Quest does, but like they were just sunglasses, right? So if we can start to get down to form factors like that, right, that you don't look like you're a robot walking around, I feel like that's where AR starts to take off. But I'm excited about the future of AR. There's probably some form factor where it's not even like connected, but it's a virtual battery with all the computer and everything in the, the battery pack. And then you're wearing like some cool looking glasses slash goggles. So you know, the there's something cheating there. in school, you know, just throw some contacts in contacts are hooked up to something back there. That was my dream that's, when I was younger. Like, that's definitely coming. And I think that's, I feel bad for, you know, teachers are going through a massive shift right now. I, I don't know that many teachers in my life, but the ones I do they're you know, they're everything's going to in-person test papers. Everything's got to be done because it's just so easy to cheat now. Yeah, um, so it is. It's part of life, though, is learning how to adapt and how to overcome. And I remember taking exchange tests back in the day to get exchange certified. And they're like, oh, you can't use the internet. My exchange server goes down. I'm Googling. How do I fix this? Like, I'm not going to be the expert that just knows exactly what to be doing, but you got to learn. Um, I know we're almost at time. I have one last question really for you. Um, is You said you're an early adopter. That's awesome. Love it. How do you stay current with today's industry and trends? You have particular resources that you trust that you read every day. What What are your strategies you find that work? Yeah, I mean, I've always I'm consuming either through audio or reading nonstop, and I try to mix it between fiction, keep my brain 
uh, from being jumbled and then like business leadership technology, you know, like things like, I like recently I've read chip wars, invisible women is a fascinating book talking about how the world has been designed basically around the male form factor. And it's not a, it's, it's un, it's kind of a bias that maybe we knew hundreds of years ago, but we just haven't re revisited. But it, it's specifically, I look at things like tech meme every day because it aggregates and like highlights the most interesting stories. And it's looking at, it's got a basic algorithm and some manual overlay. Mm -hmm. You know, I use Apple News and have subscription to that. So I'm reading Wall Street Journal, uh, subscription New York Times. I'm reading that every day. Mm -hmm. Information's interesting, although it's very inside baseball, inside kind of Silicon Valley. It's a little, little bit, uh, almost too inside the like big tech companies and um but yeah i'm just consuming i'm you know i'm a i'm a fan of the industry um i kind of want to be you know what's going on how are things going on how's the evolution you know it's it's interesting you know in 2020 or sorry in 2000 you know it was like it was a pretty small industry and i i don't think i fully appreciate that by like 2010 it was like oh i'm i'm kind of an experienced hack at this and and know everybody but I really didn't. And now it's become mainstream and so many people work in quote unquote tech around the world. You know, as I travel to other other major cities for for work and get exposed to tech meetups and whatnot, it's it boggles my mind how many people are in quote unquote in tech and how big some of these companies that I saw early. I mean, Apple's obviously been a long-term titan and they have a lot of employees. But even just like the Googles and the Facebooks, where I was, you know, I sort of knew some of the earliest people and was there when they were small. You know, it blows my mind how big these companies are, um, and dare I say, maybe a little bloated. Um, but there's just a lot of people now, and so I, I think I just, you know, keeping up with it and understanding that and, and being aware. Yeah, well said. I mean, I remember those early days of Silicon Valley and all the startups. It was a everyone got rich very quickly if you were in on it, and then everyone wanted to be a part of it. So then you got the sprawl now, Josh. I really appreciated this conversation. I think it was awesome. I had fun with it. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything else you just want to share or plug while you uh, while you're here? No, Greg, I appreciate it as well. Thank you for the conversation. Um, you know, love working with you guys, and appreciate being part of the podcast. Yeah, and Josh, um, One Signal is an awesome tool for anyone listening. It's a great way to get notifications out to your users that are using it, or maybe have disengaged for a while. You can reach out to them and get to know them again. We'll have tons of information about One Signal on our site, so you can check it out. We'll link to it and. Josh, again, thank you for coming on today, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you, Greg.